and welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer the effects of rhabdomyolysis if it leaked out that you missed this week's show. Risk management one. You want to keep your nonprofit safe. To help you, Gene Takagi starts a two-part mini-series on risk management. We kick off with indemnification. It sounds boring, but it's a word with great significance for your board members, officers, employees, your contracts, even your sexual harassment policy. Gene is our legal contributor and managing attorney of NEO, the Nonprofit and Exempt Organizations Law Group. On Tony's Take Two, fundraiser turnover. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. It's always a pleasure to welcome back Gene Takagi, our legal contributor. He runs the law firm NEO, Nonprofit and Exempt Organizations Law Group in San Francisco. Gene edits the wildly popular nonprofitlawblog.com, which you need to be subscribed to, and is a part-time lecturer at Columbia University. His firm is at neolawgroup.com, and he is at GTAC. Welcome, Gene. Good to have you. Great to be here, Tony. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. As the uh, summer has wound down here at the beach... Um, I'm always looking for a little extra, you know, it's, it's North Carolina, so we can, we can eke another maybe four, four to six weeks out of it. Well, while the rest of the country is saying summer has ended. We get a little bit of that nice uh, September weather here in San Francisco as well. So um, excellent. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Cool. So indemnification, Gene, um, why, why is this significant for our, or directors, officers, employees? Well, that's actually one place where indemnification could be really interesting. Um, So you've got board members who go, oh, if we're doing our job and somebody sues us for doing our job as board members and we're just volunteers, what happens? Who pays for that? And the general answer is, well, the organization is going to pay for the lawsuit that's filed against the organization But if the directors get sued individually, they're going to have to sort of pay out from their own pocket for for those lawyers and things, absent something that says that they're going to be indemnified. Um, And that's where indemnification comes in. And so stepping back a second, Tony, indemnification really means that one party is going to protect another party by paying for maybe the costs, the expenses, the losses, the liabilities associated if there is a lawsuit coming from somebody else um, and for the board member who's just doing their job and just gets sued because whoever that third party is, is represented by a lawyer who says, sue everybody because we don't know who has the deep pocket, right? So sue the organization, sue the board members who are in charge of the organization since the board members are ultimately responsible for that organization, sue everybody. Um, And in those cases, the organization probably will want to indemnify the board members, but does it actually say that they have to? 
And for some board members, including myself, and I, I suspect maybe you would think the same way, if the organization isn't clear that they're going to indemnify us in that situation, well, I may not want to be a board member of that organization. So, Where, where, should, where should this be made so clear? So it should be made clear in the bylaws. Okay. So the bylaws are going to specify kind of the level of indemnification. State law might actually say when indemnification is actually required. Um, so the bylaws will say, well, if it's not explicitly required under state law, here's where we're going to protect you. And then the state law may say, well, if you get sued, Tony, uh, for being a board member of a nonprofit, you just did your job, you did nothing unlawful, and in the lawsuit, you win. The court says, Tony did nothing wrong. Maybe the organization did something wrong, but Tony did nothing wrong as a board member. That lawsuit is thrown out. You still have to pay your lawyers and whatever the court costs were to, to file you know, responses and all of that. Um, so in that case, state law usually provides that, well, if the court said you weren't responsible, then the organization must indemnify you for that because you were just doing your job. But okay. what if it never goes to court? What if it settles? As you know, 90 some percent of the cases just settle because nobody wants to pay the court fees or wait five years to get into you know, trial. Um, what happens then? And that's where it may be discretionary. Um, and that's where, you know, a board member may say, well, I want the maximum protection you can provide to me. And I want to see that in the bylaws before I agree to serve. Okay, right. So not just relying on the state law, that, that, that just may not be comprehensive enough. I mean, you know, folks need to understand that as, as soon as you're sued, you, you start spending money because you have to answer. You're, you, you need an attorney to answer. You can't just answer, no, I don't agree. You have to answer. Well, you got to pay an attorney and he or she is going to have to do research to prepare your answer. So now you're already into hours and billing. Um, and and then on top of, all right, so like you're saying, Gene, on top of all the, the back and forth, even if even if, um, even if you get let out of a suit, if, if, if an action is dismissed for for with respect to a board member, there still could be expenses of discovery where your attorney has to spend time and money attending depositions, potentially answering other, other requests for information about you. Fees can build up quickly in a lawsuit. Yeah. It can rapidly cost thousands of dollars. Yeah. Easily, easily. Yeah. Um, And then if you're not let out early, you can't prove that you you should be dismissed early. Uh, then you know the fees continue, and that's that's what that's the the expenses that we're talking about. That those expenses of of litigation, even just way, way before we even talk about a court date, or just getting set up for that, and just answering the complaint against you. Um, is this so? Is this pretty common? You're saying sue everybody that you see. You see lawsuits, just all the board members are just named. It's not super common because if, if it's really clear that board members just had nothing to do with it, they, board members typically are not involved in day-to-day management, right? For most organizations, they have staff that, that are going to do that. For board members who are involved in day-to-day management, then yes, this is more typical that if somebody's going to sue the organization, they're going to sue all the board members as well. But to the extent that they're volunteers and not paid and they're not responsible for day-to-day management and 
typically, if they have some sort of insurance available, directors and officers insurance that protects them against personally being sued. Usually the organization pays for it, but it benefits the directors and officers and possibly management and other employees as well. But if they have those things, that's when a plaintiff might say, we're not going to bother because they'll fight us on this. They have an insurance company who will fight us on this. They may be after the low-hanging fruit of saying, okay, you know, we're going to sue everybody and we're going to get paid something. We're going to get it settled. So again, state law might say, well, in a settlement, you don't necessarily have to pay your board member for being sued, their Mm -hmm. personal costs. Like, so you could still be out of pocket unless the organization says, well, in these cases, to the extent that the law allows, and there has to be like certain limits to that, because if obviously if you were a board member and you hit somebody in the head and they sued you at, at a nonprofit event, well, you wouldn't expect the nonprofit to indemnify you for that. Um, but if it was a decision you made to approve a lease and then the organization defaulted or breached the lease, the board member may go, I didn't have day-to-day responsibility of that. Like that, you know, and if you sued me because I happen to own a house and have some personal assets and the charity is maybe not so financially healthy, yeah, yeah. I don't want to have to be out of pocket on that. So let's make sure you have insurance. Let's make sure you have indemnification provision. So I feel better protected about serving as a board member. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. Work with them. Let them help you hone your message, craft that message down to the most concise points so that when you are getting the exposure that Turn 2 will get for you in all those outlets you've heard me talk about, like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Chronicle of Philanthropy, you're coming across just right for the journalists who who you're talking to. You got to get your message, craft it well, and then get it out there. Turn 2 helps you do both. You can do it. You can get heard in all the noise with a concise and appropriate message that shines the light on your expertise and your nonprofit's work. That's where you want to be focusing, right? You want to be highlighted. Turn 2 can help you figure all this out message-wise, and then get you the exposure. Turn to communications. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Now back to risk management one. So we're looking for the broadest possible language in the bylaws. Yeah. And, and we're looking for insurance to back that up. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So and the word maxim, maximum or maximize or to the fullest extent of the law, that's, that's the type of language um, that a board member may be looking for. Okay. But even but you're saying in some states, I mean, you may even want to go beyond what, you know, fullest extent of the law. And in addition, we shall indemnify for et cetera. Yeah. So the fullest extent of the law would be even discretionary this is, you can't do more than this. So you can't indemnify under most state laws if you hit somebody on the head. The, okay, that's well, not right. in the capacity like, of your... Yeah. An act of fraud or negligence. Right. Or gross so negligence, maybe, or recklessness. Right. 
Yeah. So typically, if if you're found, if you if it goes to court and the court says, you know what, the organization was fine, but you board member, you did something wrong, and you should be liable for this, then the organization can't indemnify you. The law won't permit it. Even if you had an agreement or the bylaws said you would okay. indemnify everything, the law will just say no. You're not allowed to do that. But okay. there's a lot of area where it's just in the middle ground, where you don't have to indemnify, and when you but you're allowed to indemnify. And so that's where you want to say to the fullest extent that the law allows, we will indemnify our board members and our officers. And I would say our employees. Okay. Right. Right. So, yeah. So within that gray area between what's minimum that the state requires and what's possible, you want the broadest coverage possible. Exactly. The broadest language. Right. Okay. Yes. And we've been using the example of board members, but, applies to officers and and employees even too. Yeah. And so that's actually a funny area where some, you know, some boards don't think about it very much and they go, oh, indemnification. Yes, we want to protect the board members. Um, But they may not think beyond that. There are a lot of bylaws that just say, well, we will indemnify our board members to the fullest extent of the law. And employees typically don't have much of a say in what the bylaws say, right? If there's a board. Not at all. Yeah. So, the question is, should the board be indemnifying other agents of the organization when they're just as, you know, blameless, you know, as a board member might be in, in trying to seek indemnification from the organization? So it becomes an equity issue about should you do that for your employees as well? And I would say generally, my my feeling is if if the organization values equity, if they state and think that they are uh, using equity as a value and not just racial equity, but just equity of, yeah. you know, more broadly, then you should be protecting your employees as much as you're protecting your, your um, board members. And certainly your CEO may not be a board member and would want to see that type of protection before agreeing to be CEO. So it has uh, recruitment uh, issues as well. Yeah. I mean, suppose an employee is out um, and they do something that's, it's not negligent, like they're being careful, but there's still, let's say, an accident of some type that's not covered by auto insurance or something, you know, some, or, uh, or someone is on your site, you know, and, and um, I don't know, something happens where, you know, that a, a, an employee gets sued by somebody who's injured or something. They were mopping the floor and somebody slipped and fell and broke. That's a good example. Neck. Slip and fall. A slip right. and fall. The, the brainless kind of... <laughs> <laughs> the brainless kind of litigation I used to do for the for the two short years that I practiced law it was, it was def- slip and fall and trip and fall and auto accident defense. Um, yeah, you know they 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 they, they mopped, they put the cones out, but the person still fell. Right? Yeah. They put police tape around it, the wet spot in the floor, and the person still wandered in there and fell. They get sued um, as an individual, right? They, the organization gets sued, but the employee the the Mopping the floor gets sued too. You got to protect that person. Yeah, you got to protect that person, especially if the manager told them to mop the floor yeah. and put out right. the codes. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. So yeah, so recruitment of board members, employees, officers. You know, I, I would, I would think. I don't know. Is this? Yeah, this is just something that, like, if if you're if you are a CEO or a, or other officer, other officer, you just need to know this. I mean, who's gonna who's gonna be looking out for you? in the hiring process. 
Yeah. Well, if you're a CEO, you you should know a little bit about indemnification right. and you should be looking for, for, for that provision in the bylaws right. that protects you. Okay. Other officers too. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So CFOs, officers, marketing, fundraise, chief fundraisers. Yeah. I mean, all right. So do you think it's, do you think it's wise to be represented by an attorney when you're being recruited? I mean, so you've, you've gone through the, the recruitment process, they've made an offer, the, the organization has made an offer. Should folks be, should, I, I, should folks who are officers be represented by attorneys to, to review an employment contract when you're not an at-will employee without a contract? So for 99% of the people, so most of the people listening to this show, that's probably not realistic to, to, to have a, a hire a lawyer for okay. that. So it, it would be tough. But ideally, if you have an uncle who's a lawyer who knows that particular area of maybe employment law, um, yeah, it, it, it helps. to if, if there is an employment contract, yes, you should try to get a lawyer to look at it to make sure that you've got these type of things covered in that contract. Okay. And you know what? I don't want to confuse folks. I just, I, I just conflated two things. You could have a, an employment contract and still be an at-will employee. Yeah, the the contract could explicitly say you are an at will employee, but it could also lay out other requirements and uh, you know whatever perks that you've negotiated or whatever. So I didn't mean to confuse folks. You can have an like I said, you can have an employee employment agreement and still be an at will employee, which means you could be fired for wearing an ugly tie. Yeah, then the question would be: Do they indemnify you for something that happened while you were an employee? But by the time the lawsuit hit, you were no longer an employee, or you were no longer a board member, or you were no longer an officer. So um, how that might apply to somebody who was a former director, officer, employee is also really important. So, you know, as a board member, again, I would be looking for indemnification of not only current directors, officers, and employees, but former directors, officers, and employees as well. Excellent, Gene. Right. It has to survive beyond the tenure of board service or employment. Yeah. Cause that lawsuit can happen right after. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe it's something that doesn't get discovered for six months. If, if, if it's some kind of alleged fraud or something like that, it might not be exactly. discovered for six months or a year that you're yeah. being sued for. Okay. Excellent. Good. Thank you. That's why you're the legal contributor, nonprofit radio. It's, it's a no brainer. That's why you are. <laughs> Um, all right, so let, let's go to um, sticky situations with um, employees, and you're concerned about indemnification for sexual harassment. That's an that's an interesting thing. Yeah, so I mean, there are there are going to always be some laws that restrict what type of indemnification you're able to get um, in employment laws, particularly um, from saying, can you ask an employee to indemnify you, the nonprofit um, for doing something in their job? So the opposite of what we've been talking about, right? So we've been talking about protecting the employee, yeah. but could the employee be asked to protect the organization um, for doing their job where the organization got sued, but the employee did something wrong. So that would be kind of the sexual harassment issue, right? So the employee did, I, the organization may have done nothing wrong, 
Mm. Uh, but the employee goes ahead and harasses uh, another employee. Could there be indemnification for that type of thing? And state laws may say whether that would be permissible or not. I don't really see that. So I don't think um, that is typically provided in there that the that the the individual employee is going to actually protect and pay for the legal fees of the employer. But when we talked about employment contracts and CEO level sort of contracts, particularly, Tony, there may be some more nuanced indemnification provisions in there. And when you do have a lawyer that's representing an individual or one party and then a lawyer for the charity, indemnification is oftentimes the most negotiated provision. That's the one that generates the most heat because you're talking about allocating risk. Who should bear most of the risk in these situations and how likely is that risk going to appear? But sexual harassment is just kind of this tricky issue of, well, do we know that it happened? And obviously the organization has some other responsibilities to launch an investigation, et cetera. Uh, around that, but could you really have an employee indemnify you for that? Is is that a way to protect charitable funds from being used? What might be a huge award of damages, right, to somebody who got hurt by that, um, or is that just so non-customary, um, uh, and you'd never get anybody to work with you know. because so, they'd be scared? So, are you just proposing it as a hypothetical, or? Yeah, I'm proposing the the sexual harassment indemnification back employee to organization as a hypothetical. The Mm -hmm. other way around is is part of what we've been talking about already is the bylaws provision protection. So the normal way we think of indemnification, at least in the bylaws and governance context, is the organization will protect the employee, right, or the director or the officer. So what if there is a charge of sexual harassment Uh, of one of the employees, and you're a board member. Now, should you get sued personally for that? Probably nobody's going to sue you unless maybe you are responsible for hiring that employee. Oh, my. So what what if the person who engaged in the sexual harassment was the CEO? And what if they had this great list of former employees, but you didn't background check enough? And it was easy enough to find after the fact that they did have this long history of being accused of sexual harassment or mm-hmm. had a criminal record of, you know, of sexual assault or anything like that. But you hired them as CEO, not knowing and not ever checking what their background was. Now, the question is, should the organization indemnify you as a director for that negligent decision or not? Or should you be personally liable for that? So that's, you know, a case where board may go, you know what, maybe we want to keep some discretion. Maybe we don't want to maximize indemnification because, you know, of that type of situation where, you know, we don't want to indemnify them, even if it never goes to court and they're not found you know, you know, guilty. So it it gets difficult in those type of situations. I would say those are extremely rare. So I don't know that I would base policy on this. I I would say of our clients, you know, 95% or more maximize their indemnification protections. 
So this type of situation would be really, really rare. And I don't know enough to build a whole policy which would affect your recruiting and you know, affect how your employees and your board members feel about whether the organization has their back or not. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Fundraiser turnover. I saw an article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy that really was startling to me in terms of the the degree of fundraiser turnover. I mean, this has been a problem long before the pandemic, but I, I just had not been putting these things together about how the pandemic has exacerbated, well, pandemic and other things like uh, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, how these things have accumulated to exacerbate the uh, rate of fundraiser turnover. So I'm, I'm just, I'm going to tick through a few things. So the concern is that uh, there's a very high risk that top talent in fundraising will either be poached away or leave voluntarily. So what this article is imploring you to do is identify the pain points and resolve them. So the pain points that that they point out are uh, uh, that would cause a fundraiser to leave are uh, increased pressure to succeed, feeling underappreciated, lack of upward mobility, stagnant pay, and it being harder to reach donors and prospects. So these are uh, those are substantial. That's five things that are five things that are, that are pretty substantial uh, pain points for fundraisers. All right, so. Resolving those pain points, here's what's recommended. Embrace remote work. Frequent feedback, like monthly meetings with fundraisers and supervisors. Cutting virtual meetings that the fundraisers really don't need to be at. Living up to those equity declarations that every nearly every organization put out, but actually living up to them. And staying true to your mission and values, because that's what brought people to you in the first place. The article is uh, in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. It's how to hang on to fundraisers in a hot job market. It was September 14th, 2021. Check it out if you can, if you've got a subscription, uh, or maybe after, I think after a certain time, it, uh, all their content, uh, becomes available, no longer behind the paywall. So check out this article in uh, Chronicle of Philanthropy and do what you can. Do what is in your power to keep your good fundraisers with you. That is Tony's Take Two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for Risk Management One. Well, look, you know, we're talking about risk management, so we gotta we gotta go to the dark side. We got we, we have to think about we have to think about the things that nobody wants to think about uh, happening. Uh, what about does, does financial fraud fall into this? Suppose it's a CFO or a, it could be a CEO too. Um, does financial fraud sort of fall into the same category as the sexual harassment? So it could. I mean, although in some cases, you know, the the organization is probably not going to say um, if you um, commit uh, a a criminal act uh, of embezzlement or financial fraud that hurts us, we're not going to indemnify you um, because we would actually be suing you in that case. We're not going to hold you harmless 
for that type of situation where you actually did something to hurt us. But if you were accused of um, taking funds, let's say, from one of our um, um, members and uh, you were a service delivery provision nonprofit. So as a nonprofit, uh, let's say you engage in um, providing nursing home services or something and you CFO or whatever is charge somebody, um, but you mischarge them or else the claim is that you mischarge them. And so they got, you know, charged $50,000 where they're claiming that you only delivered $10,000 worth of services. Um, so that's typically a nonprofit, a, a suit against the nonprofit and not against the individual personally. But what if they intentionally did that because they wanted to pocket the, the $40,000 difference? Yeah. Um, so that would be a case where they would have a claim against the individual who was both hurting the nonprofit and, and the, the patient or the, the person looking for the services. Um, and then, so in, in that case, yes, if it went to court and found out, yes, that they actually did that, no, you would not be allowed to indemnify them for doing that. But what if it was a dispute about whether they actually did that or not? What if there is an argument about whether there was a charge, um, a, a false, fraudulent charge? False charge. Yeah. yeah. So that's where, you know, most cases end up settling, right, Tony? They don't actually okay. go to trial because it takes so long. And then that's the case where the board has got to say, well, was there good faith? And, you know, they're going to have to do an investigation because if they're going to indemnify they're going to want to, or they may need to know under state law that there was no ill intent there. Um, if it was um, negligent, um, it was, you know, simply negligent. It wasn't somebody trying to benefit themselves, you know. Yeah. Um, in that case, then indemnification may be possible, in which case if the bylaws say maximize indemnification or indemnification to the fullest extent of the law, you could indemnify but if it was clearly that they were trying to commit financial fraud, then you'd probably be prohibited from indemnifying and you wouldn't do that anyway. Okay. Excellent. All right. All right. Let's talk about contracts, Gene. Indemnification routinely shows up in, in contracts. Um, what's the, what, just lead us, lead us into it. I mean, I, I've, I've seen it in, dozens of contracts I've signed to do consulting, asking for me to indemnify the, the organization. Uh, let's talk about what, you know, what it means. Let's talk about should it be uh, reciprocal, et cetera. Yeah, so indemnification, the way we've been talking about it is protecting board members and officers and employees. And you know, it seems like, oh, generally that's the right thing to do, absent something terrible that they've done intentionally wrong. So how does this figure out in contracts? Like, is it a great thing to do to indemnify another party? Um, And this is what, when we're talking about risk management and what is the appropriate allocation of risk here between two parties? So when we had a volunteer board member trying to do their job and the nonprofit that asked them to do this job, well, then the risk allocation seems to be, well, the nonprofit should carry more of that risk. 
you know, versus the volunteer board member. If the volunteer board member acted in good faith yeah. and just yeah, did just, their job. They were doing their job and they acted reasonably. Right. But if there is a contract now between the nonprofit and some independent contractor, or it could be, you know, it could be an individual consultant, or it could be a huge company, right? That's providing tech support services or something. Tech support, your CRM. Uh, yeah. It could be a huge company, a billion dollar company like Blackboard or Salesforce. Neither of whom would do anything wrong, but <laughs> should, should something. They want to be protected if you do. Uh, all right. So, yeah. oh, but it could be very unequal. You could be a, you could be a half a million dollar a year agency signing a contract with Salesforce, a, 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 a tens of billions of dollar company. Yeah. So and unequal you know, parties there. All right. So go ahead. Sorry. The, the contract is going to typically look like a form contract that they give to everybody, like the type of contract that you would sign at a rental car agency. Yeah. Right? And at a rental car agency, you're not bargaining for like, okay, <laughs> let's cross this off before I sign the contract. You either want the car or you don't want the car. Let's <laughs> yeah. take it or leave it. Right. <laughs> Um, and while the contracts that you might sign with this huge multi-billion dollar company might look very much the same, there may actually be room for some negotiation in there. And part of that may have to do with how you allocate risk. Now, if you are the nonprofit who's simply paying for services, there's a question of why should you bear any risk if all you're doing, if the only obligation you have in the contract is to pay money, you know? Um, so why should you bear that risk? Now, typically you have probably a few more things to do under that contract, like provide, you know, access to your, your um, facilities or to provide the software, access to your software or whatever, to, to whatever independent contractor company or, or individual is going to do. So I've simplified it a little bit, but if mostly what you're doing is just paying money to receive services in return, you probably don't want to indemnify the other party, but if they're providing services to you and maybe acting in your organization's name, so let's say you're a charity that um, is providing direct services to people experiencing homelessness um, and you're short staffed. So you hire a staffing service company to provide some yeah. additional support staff. Um, so they send you people who are clearly not able to do their job or the job that needs to be done very well. Or, they, they're, or they're qualified and somebody does something bad. Right. Or they do something bad, either intentionally or grossly negligently. Okay. Yeah. Somebody gets hurt out of that. Um, so then the question is, well, who should bear the responsibility if the nonprofit gets sued for the bad act of that staffing service company's yeah. employee? Right. Um, so should it be the nonprofit who gets sued? Now, if you're the person who got hurt in, in that exchange, you got poisoned while you were there and you had ended up racking up, you know, $20,000 of hospital bills, like, who do you sue? Well, again, you probably sue everybody. Yeah, you're going to sue the nonprofit, you're going to sue the agency. Yeah. So probably, you know, the nonprofit, you may not even know that they've used an agency, right? So, but probably you're going to sue the nonprofit. That's right. Well, you'll find that out, right? That's true. Yeah. You, you'll, you'll, you'll find sue it the out. person. You'll sue the individual person who was the service provider. Yeah. You know, maybe you got poisoned. Maybe they didn't help you write transfer from, from 
from bed to to chair or something and you fell. Exactly. You know, there you go. All right. All right. So in the contract between the nonprofit and that staffing service company, you'd expect that the nonprofit would want to be indemnified. So that would be a case where indemnification might be completely reasonable and customary in nature. Um, and then it, it, the language of the indemnification provision can vary um, in terms of scope of coverage and you know, what maximum amount of liability that there can be. There may also be an insurance requirement to make sure that the other uh, provider of the services has sufficient insurance um, right. to be the, able to pay to, off claims. Yeah, to actually indemnify. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's common to see an insurance requirement too. Right. Yeah. So that may be why they often go hand in hand, that insurance requirement and then the indemnification provision. Right. Um, but yeah, that's where the allocation of risk goes on. So if you're just a nonprofit who mostly pays money to receive services and that service provider is interacting with other parties who could get injured as a result of those services, then you as the nonprofit probably want an indemnification provision in the contract with them. Now, another, I thought of another possibility. You know, I was raising Salesforce and Blackboard. Suppose it's a data breach. Yeah. You know, they have access to your data in the cloud. Uh, suppose they're, you know, you want indemnification for, uh, for a data breach. Yeah, very possible. And they may be, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that they do ask for it, but any big company may be actually looking to indemnify uh, the indemnification to run the other way. So they may be saying, well, what if you screwed it up in setting up the system and it wasn't our fault, it wasn't the software itself, but whoever you hired or whoever you had implement the system, they were responsible yeah. And you, you know, and we got sued for it. We want you, you know, to hold us harmless. And if, if somebody else sued us for it, then, you know, it, it was your mistake, then we want you to pay for it. So it's that, you know, what is each party doing? So if you're merely paying money to another party, you probably want the indemnification to run just one way to benefit you as a charity. But if you're each have a, you know, a piece of, of, of action, in that contract, you're, you know, you're not just paying money, but you're actually using uh, whatever the other party, uh, their services or their goods or their software, or their intellectual property, you're actually using it and you could create harm as well through that use. Then maybe a mutual or reciprocal indemnification would be appropriate. So basically in a reciprocal indemnification, it's saying whatever we've done wrong if you get sued for it, we'll pay for that lawsuit. And if you've done something wrong and we get sued for it, you'll pay for that lawsuit. So basically it's whoever's at fault, you've got to cover both of us if that happens. So that's a reciprocal indemnification clause where the language is identical for each party to protect the other. But sometimes the level of risk shouldn't be allocated equally. Like, so what if I'm paying money and you're providing all these services and I'm just doing something a little bit more than paying money. I'm giving you access to our facilities um, and you're doing all, all the rest. Everything else is, is your, so if I'm going to give you any indemnification at all, it might be for if you get hurt because our facilities were faulty or something. And, and okay. you know, it, it would be a very minimal level of indemnification 
but you're doing, you know, a million dollars of service work for us, well, then we're going to expect, you know, you to indemnify us much more broadly, because if somebody sued us for your bad work, we're, we're much more exposed for that. And then obviously, the billion dollar service company has way more money and insurance and lawyers to be able to protect uh, in that situation than, you know, our little charity. So, yeah, so unequal parties, but also unequal contributions to the purpose of the contract, whatever, right. whatever it is. And these and, and this indemnification doesn't only show up in big contracts. I mean, it could be a very local service provider that that has a standard contract that includes indemnification. So you, when you see that word indemnification, you want to raise a red flag and consider that there's great significance in that single word. Absolutely. Great dollars and publicity potentially and headaches. You want to be aware of what's behind that word indemnification. That's why I, I wanted Gene to focus on it so much. Um, and Gene, you mentioned hold harmless. A lot of times you see the phrase indemnify and hold harmless. Let me just explain what the whole harmless part of that means. Not not all the detail about whether you should or not, but just so folks know, know, know what the phrase hold harmless means. Sure. So I, I would say in sort of broad general terms, they're often seen as synonyms of each other. Um, for some, there's a distinction that's important that the hold harmless, meaning that I won't sue you if you do something that hurts me. I've sort of assumed that risk. If, if you deliver the services on my behalf, I know what your capabilities are. And if you screw up and it was negligent, I'm going to hold you harmless. So that could be one distinction, whereas indemnification really contemplates like a third party coming in and saying, I got hurt. Um, so you indemnify me, you protect me. But a hold right. harmless could be thought of, don't sue me for my mistake. Right. I'll hold you. You're, you're harmless. You're blameless. Or I'll, I'll, I'll presume that you're going to be. So I won't sue you. But state laws may treat these defined terms that are sometimes defined in state law differently. In some, in some um, states, I think hold harmless may indicate this obligation to advance funds um, uh, in a defense. So not just so if, if oh, you were okay. indemnified, for example, you mentioned all the legal fees just to, to get into court and to provide an answer. Well, not everybody has the free cash flow to just be able to hire the lawyer to provide that answer right away. So when does the corporation that's indemnifying you have to advance you the money? That, that may be kind of another issue of negotiation or um, determination of what is most appropriate there. Okay. And that may be under state law also. The advance yeah, absolutely. Under indemnification. Yeah, right. Yeah, because you could easily uh, find a, a lawyer or an attorney based, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a lawyer or a firm based on the complexity of the of the lawsuit that that requires a $10,000 retainer to yeah. get started. I mean, if it's a complex case or they think it's going to be. So, you know, who comes up with a $10,000 retainer to just to get into your, just to get your answer in within 30 days so you know, so that you're, you're protected. You're, you're, you've answered the, the complaint against you. Um, okay. And yes, and these things can be in lots of contracts. I, I, you know, like if you're leasing copiers uh, from someone, if you're certainly, if you're renting space, there's indemnification there. Yep. You know, any kind of lease, automobile leases, 
vendors like Gene, like you were saying, all kinds of potential vendors look for that indemnification and, and, and think about it. Yeah, and the examples I've been given is where the nonprofit is paying the money for something in return, but oftentimes the nonprofit may be the service provider in these contracts. Right. So it might be, they, yes. And then, right. So if you're providing the service, it may make more sense for you to be indemnifying. Yeah. If the table is turned where your contribution to the purpose of the contract is greater. But be careful of what the indemnification provision says, because, you know, if you're indemnifying because you were grossly negligent or you willfully, or you or one of your agents, you know, willfully did something wrong, knowing it to be like a, a mis- an act of misconduct. That's one thing. But what if we said you're going to indemnify you for anything you do or anything you don't do, but the other party got harmed? So as a result of any action you did or any failure to act that you did and we got harmed. Well, what does that mean? if 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 it's not within the scope of the contract, why are we responsible if we do something and you get harmed from something we don't even know about? Never mind. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that in standard contracts for my consulting and I've objected to it. Any, yeah, any, hold on for any, any action related at all to the, it wasn't even limited to the contract. It was just indemnify and hold harmless for any reason or something like that. And it's, whoa, that, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the other party may love that because they're just trying to shed all the risk on you. Right. Um, That's where you you have to object. Yeah. That's where you, you know, again, if you don't have that rental car contract, um, you should you should go in and, and negotiate for that. Right. Okay. So I want listeners, please be aware of the import of indemnification. Gene, anything else you want to leave folks with before I tease what risk management two is going to be about? Um, I, I would just say it's wise. You asked me this earlier on, when do you get a lawyer for this? Like um, in terms of the employment situation, Yeah. whenever you're going to enter into a contract um, where there's an indemnification provision in there, or if you want to put an indemnification provision in there, you probably want to have a relationship with a lawyer who can take at least a quick look at that and say, yeah, this is wrong, or yes, let's add it in here. So it may not be very much time, but a lawyer can give you great value, especially if it's one that you have a regular relationship with. So they don't have to like read the whole thing, you know, line by line. But you can say, you know, you've looked at this type of contract for us before. We just want you to look at this provision. Should we, you know, question it or should we take it out or should we put this one in? Um, If you've got a regular lawyer who's, you know, used to doing some work with you, then that might be a more efficient way to to deal with those situations. So there is some value. I know this is self-serving as a lawyer, but there may be some some benefits to having that regular relationship with a lawyer, even if it's somebody on your board um, who knows this stuff, who isn't giving you legal advice, but who can generally issue spot for you and say, "Mm, let's let's get a lawyer to spend an hour to take a look at this. Even if that's what it, it is, try to do that. And there have been plenty of times, Gene, where you've said you don't really need an attorney for this. So you've, you're, always, you're always balanced about whether an attorney is required. Gene Takagi, our legal contributor, managing attorney of 
the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group, NEO, in San Francisco. You'll find him at nonprofitlawblog.com and at GTAC. Gene, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tony. Great to see you. Your expertise is incredibly valuable. Thank you. And next time we're together, Gene and I will talk about risk management two other ways to protect your directors, officers, employees, like strong governance and policies and risk management and insurance. That'll be risk management two when it come up coming up in a couple of weeks. Next week, Punam Prasad with what to do with your year-end donors in 2022. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. 